Welcome to Rencast. My name is Kate Mile. I run the writing support service Renco, which stands for Written English Collaboration. I love writing, but and this may sound a little sacrilegious, I prefer talking. I want the words I write to be witnessed, to have life breathed into them. This week on Rencast, I'm featuring a piece about home called Three Farmhouses in New England. Here goes. I used to work at a small New England college, the archetype of a liberal arts campus, with its abundance of brick and trees, dining halls and residence halls, museums and playing fields, plentiful walking paths, and a scarcity of parking spaces. One of my primary duties was to meet with students interested in studying away. In this role, I met individually with hundreds of students. Our initial meetings were only supposed to be 25 minutes long. In that time, I needed to learn about their academic interests, suggest study away opportunities, and outline nuances of policy. But I quickly discovered that I needed to know so much more about the individuals I was working with than just their majors. And I wanted to know more. How had they come to be at our small, academically rigorous college in the most Northeastern state? What sort of learning environment did they value? What about social environments? How do they approach decision-making? How much support do they need or want when studying elsewhere and adjusting to a new culture? But how could I possibly sit down and say, Hi, I'm Kate. What sort of learning environment do you value? It's the opposite of an icebreaker. For all intents and purposes, a question like that is a snow machine. But each year I had hundreds of students to practice on, and it didn't take long for me to hit upon my opening question. Where's home for you? That's it. Just four words. Where's home for you? And with that one question, asked in sincerity and with curiosity, I began to learn so much about the person across the desk from me. Some answered right away, town and state. Others told me where they grew up and where their parents now lived and what it's like to visit a different house over break. A few described the nomadic life of a military or state department family. A number held in their hearts homes in both their country of birth and in the US. Some students came from towns immediately surrounding the campus. Lots came from just outside of Boston, commonly known on campus as JOBs. And others felt compelled to explain to me, the small town college advisor I appeared to be, that they were from Brooklyn, which is part of New York City, or San Francisco, which is in California. <laughs> I developed a special fondness for students from regions less commonly connected to New England. Students from Alabama, Arkansas, Texas, Wyoming, we would talk about how different the regions are and how they were already, in a sense, studying abroad within their own country. Where's home for you? With this one question, I began to learn how far from home my student had come, how much farther they wanted to go. I learned about their decision-making process, 
why they moved across the country or why actually staying home was okay, or what coming to the U.S. for college meant to them. Occasionally, a student would notice how broadly I'd phrased the question and would ask me to confirm if I meant their billing address or something else. I would say, I ask it that way on purpose. I'm curious to know where feels like home to you. And every so often, a student would notice the person on the other side of the desk, namely me, and reciprocate the question. Where's home for you? I'm a New Englander, I would say. My parents met and married in Maine, and my grandmother lived here for most of my childhood. But I was born and raised in Connecticut. We moved a lot, but Maine remained the constant in my life, and now I live here. So yeah, I call myself a New Englander. In case you don't know, Maine is one of those places where to be from Maine requires constant residency, not just in your own life, but also in the lives and deaths of at least five generations of kin. Without the requisite in-state birth and burial records, you're simply going to be from away. For more about the peculiarities of Maine culture, I encourage you, read John Hodgman's 2017 memoir, Vacation Land, True Stories from Painful Beaches. In many ways, I don't mind being labeled from away. I loved the richness of childhood on the doorstep of New York City that allowed for school trips to the Met and Radio City Music Hall. Balanced every summer with wild blueberry picking and swimming in the forest edge pond at my grandmother's house in Maine every summer. The house in Maine where my grandmother lived for so many years was called Apple Tree Farm. It was an old farm my dad had bought and restored in the 1970s. It's one of those houses that has had many lives, going back to the 1800s, maybe actually before. I wasn't there, of course, for the first two centuries of its life, nor for the life it led when my dad, his first wife, and kids moved there. But I know they revived it greatly. They got rid of the raccoons and residents. They brought in horses, pigs, chickens, sheep. The L was once again filled with seasoned firewood, harvested by hand and hauled by horse from the 200 acres of surrounding forest. I'm not sure if the pond down the back meadow at the edge of the forest was dug by my dad or simply restored. But either way, it gave cold, spring-fed respite to animals and humans alike in the dog days of summer. Again, I wasn't there for this life at the farm, and I envy my half-sister and brother for the decade they spent as farm kids. As I said, I was born in Connecticut. After my dad divorced his first wife and married my mother, he disconcerted her substantially by leaving their hippie-adjacent lifestyle in Maine to take a job fundraising for his old prep school in Connecticut. (laughs) He surprised her again a few years after that when he chose to attend divinity school at Yale to become an Episcopalian priest. In the meantime, my grandmother, who's my mother's mother, ended up moving to Apple Tree Farm. She kept it warm in the winter, running wood stoves for months at a time. Come spring, she established gardens that she fiercely defended from deer and weeds. Throughout summer and autumn, she would harvest, can, and freeze the bounty of northern New England's short but productive growing season. And a few of the heritage apple trees, after which the farm was named, still bore fruit, a variety I'm told was called 
banana apples, and these she made into applesauce. How I wish I could take you there, to the apple tree farm of my summer vacations and Christmas breaks. Together we would eat cherry tomatoes off the vine until we made our mouths sore, and then we'd eat bread fresh from the oven with Kate's salted butter, or corn from the farm stand, fragrant from the steamer, and likewise smothered in Kate's salted butter. The eggs we would eat for breakfast every morning would have yolks as bright as a school bus and shells as sturdy as ceramic. If we were lucky, we'd be up early enough to catch a glimpse of a moose mother and calf drinking from the pond. After washing up the breakfast dishes and making our beds, we could drive with my grandmother the 20 miles or so to one of the nearby towns, passing fields of crops and grazing animals and farm stands and the occasional gas station. If we went to Belfast, we could go to the co-op to buy freshly ground peanut butter to make into cookies and cream we'd whipped and freeze into dollops to add to desserts whenever they needed a little extra. Or we could go to Waterville, where we would wander the aisles of Marden's fabrics, selecting a dozen yards or so from the hundreds there. We'd bring our dozen back home to wash, iron, cut, sew, and iron again into clothes. Occasionally we'd venture down to Augusta and eat fried seafood at the Red Barn, and then have some ice cream from the Giffords next door. In the winter, we'd stay in, listening to the radio, reading old books, baking, baking, constantly baking, and feeding the wood stove, enjoying the higa without even knowing the word for it. Apple Tree Farm is the essence of home for me. This essay is about Apple Tree Farm, but it's also about another old farmhouse in Maine. About six years ago, my husband and I bought an old farmhouse. It doesn't have a pond or 200 acres of woods, but it also wasn't 20 miles from the nearest supermarket. The house, known as the Old Hunter Estate, is from about 1800. It's built on a two and a half acre clearing, elevated from the road and adorned with massive stands of lilac, beech roses, quince, forsythia, and high bush blueberries. The main structure embraces an enormous central chimney, off of which stems six fireplaces. There are also a couple of L's, a garage, a marvel for any house in Maine, and a 35 by 50 foot barn. Beyond the barn is another eight acres of wood. The day we moved in, this was March of 2016, I walked the side property for the first time and came across a brook, wild raspberry bushes, enough pine trees for a century's worth of Christmases, a preserved deer skull, and a spot I knew my young daughters would turn into fairyland. The house needed work, that's for sure. No raccoon removal, fortunately, but lots of 80s wallpaper had to come down, and lots more insulation had to go up. We fixed up an unfinished part of the house and added a bedroom and a bathroom. We built a new staircase and replaced the appliances. We replumbed every fixture, painted every room, dug beds out front and out back, added paths and a fire pit, saved the high bush blueberries from weeds, failed to establish an orchard, and Lord knows what else. Even with the new R49 insulation in the attic, the house is drafty, and even with the new plumbing, we had constant leaks. Mowing was practically a full day task, 
since the ride-on mower seemed to break whenever it was game time. Winter may have promised a respite from mowing, but snow removal required the same amount of effort and endurance and broken-down yard equipment. But if you ask my kids, they wouldn't tell you any of that about our old farmhouse. They would tell you about the kid-sized cupboard under the old front stairs warm from the chimney, or the little cupboards above the fireplaces, and the crawl space under the kitchen where you can find the soles of old shoes and bottles and bones and nails. And they'd take you out of the fairy place, showing you what logs are still sturdy enough to step on and which to avoid because they rot into the brook below. They would remind you not to mow where the low wild strawberries grow on the edge of the woods and ask to add another pulley with another bucket to service their treehouse built next to the white lilac bush. They would tell you where Julian got that scar under his eye in the pink room on the edge of the white sofa and where Vivian lost that tooth, by which I mean the floorboards where she dropped her tooth en route to putting it under her pillow. And there it remains, unremovable by parent or fairy alike. And where under the barn Aurelia found a mummified opossum. Just like Apple Tree Farm, our home spread to the places beyond the house itself, which I petitioned to be called Crab Apple Tree Farm. There's Popham Beach, where my husband and I got married and took a walk on an unseasonably warm March day right after we discovered we were pregnant with our first child. And then in Bath, there's Cafe Creme and May's Cafe, where many Sunday mornings were spent and special occasions marked, respectively. There's the route I would drive as my girls napped, up the Cathens River Road over to Bodenham, down past Mary Meeting Bay, down the Foresight Road in Topsham, and then I'd drive the loop again if they still had some sleep left in them. Of course, there's the college where I worked, and the daycare where each of our three children spent their happy first years. Down in Harpswell, there's Dolphin Marina for the best fish chowder, always served with a side of blueberry muffins and Damascata for the soda fountain at Rexel's Pharmacy and Pumpkin Fest every October. And of course, the houses of our family and friends running up and down Coastal Route 1, Montville to Woolwich, Georgetown to Bath and Brunswick, Portland and beyond. We're now thinking about selling Crabapple Tree Farm for every wide floorboard, exposed beam, remains of 19th century graffiti and fireplace. There's also a leak, a window that needs replacing, concrete that needs patching, and an oil-hungry furnace that needs constant feeding. It just takes a lot of work and a lot of money. Of course, our kids don't understand about work or money. They only have memories and a hope for a future back in that house. Please. Please, please, don't sell the house back in Maine, they've said to me. Please don't do it. It's our home. We love it. You can't just sell it. On Monday night, Julian had already fallen asleep. I'd finished reading Chapter 4 of The Bridge to Terabithia, and I was about to sing the two older girls to sleep when Aurelia once again pleaded into the dusk. Don't sell the house. You can't. It's my one true home. And so, at the wrong time of day, I told her for the first time what had happened to Apple Tree Farm. I said, my dad once had a farm, you know, a 
great big farmhouse nestled into the woods in Maine. When I was a little girl, my grandmother lived there. I loved it so much. It had a big wood stove and it always smelled like baking. And down the meadow on the edge of the forest, there was a pond and a garden and barn and memories of Christmases and birthdays and sewing clothes and frozen dollops of whipped cream melting on summer desserts. But when my parents divorced, my father said my grandmother could no longer live there. And so she had to move to another house. And that other house became her home and held our memories. But the sad part for me is that when my parents divorced, my dad promised that the farm needed to be kept, not sold, so that my brother, sister, and I could have it. But then one day, without telling us, at least without telling me, he sold it. And to this day, I don't really know why he sold it. He must have had his reasons, but to me, it was the saddest loss. And I'll never really understand it. And then a long while later, when we were all together again in Maine for my wedding to Papa, my siblings and I all went up to Apple Tree Farm. And guess what? The house and the barn and the pond and the gardens was all still there. And a new family was making memories in it. And I'm so happy for that new family even though my heart aches that my dad sold it. And some new family will make new memories in our house. And I'm telling you now, you can make memories anew. You can establish your own farmhouse someday, like I did, and hold it tight. Hold it tight. Where is home for you? Just like that, my throat clenched, pulling tight up into my mouth. My lower lip tugged, my chin taut. And I was a teenager, talking on the phone. What do you mean dad sold the farm? How, how could he do that? When did he do that? Why? 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 I felt all the grief of that news arise anew in my adult body. The distance of 20 years and 3,000 miles bridged as if by tesseract in an instant. In the dusk at the foot of my daughter's bed, my body, my emotions, time itself seemed to refract as if through a prism. And I felt the swell of grief. And then this sudden determination, greater than any desire or goal, a solemn commitment to myself to reclaim the farmhouse I'd lost that had been taken away. My brows pushed up to my forehead, opening the outer corners of my eyes, a realization that I had kept that vow. I felt comforted. I even felt proud. And then the inner corners of my eyes pressed down on my cheekbones as the light 
kept rushing through the glass, refracting the whole into each constituent color. I felt in my body my adultness once again. I felt in my rounding shoulders my fatigue from stressing about persistent water damage and broken mowers and heating bills. And the tiniest part of me wondered anew why my dad had sold Apple Tree Farm. He probably had had his reasons. You don't let an old farmhouse into your life lightly, and you don't let it go lightly either. <laughs> so I found myself weeping together alongside my daughters. We three wept in the fullness of appreciation and gratitude for the house and the land and our time there. And we wept at the thought of leaving New England with this outrageously colorful autumn and perfect snowscapes and defiantly shitty springs followed by glorious summers spent at the beach or swimming in stream-fed ponds, enjoying light until ungodly hours, and then fireflies after that. And they cried in disappointment and incomprehension why anyone would choose to give up such a perfect place, knowing nothing of mortgages or maintenance or the ever-rising prices of number two heating oil. And I cried feeling the pain and responsibility of making a decision out of free will, of choosing to sell this beloved home, despite my children's pleas, knowing that it was my decision. And not just because someone else thrust it upon me or because I had no other choice, but because it was the path I saw to making other things possible but it's a path that leads us away. My shoulders still forward and my head went back and I sobbed with the decision I'd made knowing it would stay in my children's hearts as my dad's decision had stayed in mine. And I wondered how the light would speed forward through our lives. Would they, years from now, find themselves back in Maine, <laughs> laboring to fix up farmhouses amid acres of forest, attempting for the third generation to finally establish the family's residence in order to eventually gain credibility as Mainers? Where are you from? Right now we live in Mexico. And it's not surprising I get asked this question a lot. I've taken to answering with less nuance, in part because I hobble when speaking Spanish, and in part because I know neither Maine nor Connecticut have made enough of a cultural mark to be understood internationally the way New York, Texas, and California have. So I tell people I'm from just outside of Boston. And sometimes someone says something about the Pats or the Red Sox, but for the most part, they quickly move on to the second question I'm always asked. Well, what are you doing here? <laughs> this is the answer I'm still working on. There's one more farmhouse in this story. It's another part of the story that happened before I was around. 
And as I write this, I realize I'm drawing on the lightest sketches of memories and information. But I remember now that the way that my grandmother knew so well how to take care of Apple Tree Farm, to feed its wood stoves and clear the snow from the barn and survive ice storms and make the most of the gardening season, is because a decade before she'd restored an old farmhouse near Exeter, New Hampshire, called Wobbly Farm. At that time, she was probably in her 50s and 60s. She was divorced and living alone, but she always loved making a beautiful and functional home. And so she took on all the projects of restoring an old New England farmhouse, fixing the windows, replacing the pipes, installing appliances, keeping the house warm and the well pumping. And she loved that farm. And at some point, before I was born, she had to sell it. And a few years ago, my mother, husband, and baby and I were driving back to Maine and found ourselves driving through that part of New Hampshire. On an impulse, we decided to try and drive past the farm, see how it looked. I'd never seen it before, but my mother recognized it instantly. We pulled into the driveway and I waved to a man on a ride-on mower. Excuse me, I shouted over the mower. It stopped and I approached. Hi, my name is Kate. This is going to sound strange, but my grandmother used to live here. Oh, said the man who looked to be in his 60s. Oh, you're Helen's granddaughter. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I said, delighted and disbelieving the man knew my grandmother's name. Did you know her too? Oh yeah, he said. I bought the place from her. She did a terrific job restoring it. <laughs> I basically just try and keep it looking as good as the day she sold it to me. I smiled. Would you like to take a look around? Oh, yes, we would love that. And I waved the others out of the car. The man showed us around the house. He'd kept all the wallpaper she'd hung. <laughs> and believe it or not, the appliances that she'd installed still worked even after almost 40 years. In the barn was a recording studio my uncle had owned, a time capsule of analog audio equipment. And the gardens. The gardens my grandmother had established. He continued to nurture all these years later. The place looked great. My grandmother, who had died just three years before, would have been so happy. I suppose some people, like Mainers, stay in their place forever. And some people move on. And I suppose I'm one of the people who move on. But I don't leave lightly. And just because the place isn't my billing address anymore doesn't mean it isn't still home to me. Thank you for listening to Rencast. For more about Renco and me, Kate Mile, visit rencowriting.com. That's W-R-E-N-C-O writing.com. There you can read transcripts of the podcast, 
and browse the services I offer to help with personal, professional, and creative writing projects, as well as applications and admission support. I'll be there if you want to pull up another chair to your writing desk.